When I was in grade school, there were two boys that I was not supposed to be friends with because they were, quote unquote, a bad influence on me. In fact, my mother went so far as to forbid me to hang out with these two boys. So what do you think I did? All the time, thick as thieves, and we had some pretty incredible exploits together. One example, I can't remember who came up with this idea, I don't think it was me, but it was a really good idea. We went to the corner store, bought a bunch of candy, packed a Ziploc bag full of it, and hid it in a hole in the yard that was used for recess by our school. So when we went out to recess, it was there. I remember my job was to distract the other kids so one of my friends could go get it without anyone finding out about our stash spot, and we took out the candy and sold it for a profit, (laughs) which is gangster in anybody's book. But I do have to say I did get in trouble more often when I hung out with these two boys. They were not um, what you would describe as closely supervised by their, their parents. They could go anywhere they wanted in town. Me, on the other hand, I had very clearly articulated boundaries. I was not allowed to ride my bike past Tarawa Avenue, for example. And um, this was back in the days before cell phones and GPS, so there, there was really only two ways parents could enforce these kinds of boundaries. One was uh, fear. Um, you had to do a cost-benefit analysis, and, and yes, it was unlikely you were going to get caught, but if you did, it was bad. So it wasn't worth it. The other side of Tarawa Avenue looked just the same as this side. It wasn't worth it. I just ride my bike on this side. Uh, The other way they kept tabs on you, the only way I can think of, is the network of nosy old grandmas in the neighborhood who just sit at the window looking outside all day. At least that's the only way that I could think that I got caught this time. The network of nosy old grandmas, I swear, we would have found Osama bin Laden in about three days if we could have just got their nosy old grandmas to help us out with that. They find everything. They see everything. And that's the only way I can think that my dad found where I was when I was way over the other side of town. This one particular day, I was out with my two friends. We came to the boundary line that didn't even make sense to them, and I crossed it. And one thing led to a next. One block led to the next, and I was way over on the other side of town having a great time until I saw at the end of the street something that made my heart sink, that cream-colored station wagon going five miles an hour down the road towards me. And my dad did a slow U-turn in the middle of the street, got out of the car. Scariest thing about it was he did not say one word. He just got out of the car, picked my bike up from the pile, threw it in the back of the station wagon, went and opened the passenger side door and went like... (laughs) Walked around to the front and sat down in the driver's seat. And I tell you what, that was a long, painful walk back to that car. I didn't get whooped, even though I do come from a whooping family, Um, but on this particular instance, they didn't feel like they needed to whoop me because they had something better. They grounded me for two weeks, which normally would be like, I just got off easy, but this was one week before Halloween. I've never forgotten it. That was a painful grounding right there. Now, I'm not trying to completely absolve myself from personal responsibility, but I do need to say that if I hadn't been hanging out with those two friends, it really would not have crossed my mind to go past Tarawa Avenue. It really wouldn't have. So Ryan and Justin, if you were listening to this podcast anywhere in the world, I blame you. It is your fault. Of course, I'm responsible. Nobody can make me do anything. The whole, the devil made me do it is nonsense. But we all do know what my mom could see that 
the people around us do influence us. The, the people we choose to hang around with and surround ourselves with can influence us. It presents opportunities for us to um, succumb to the, the, the worst side of our nature or presents opportunities for us to grow and be more like the better side of our nature. And while I can't totally blame Ryan and Justin for this, I think that they had an influence on me. And there's actually a growing body of research that is confirming these connections pretty compellingly. Uh, Tim Rath, who was the director of Gallup's polls, wrote a book called Vital Friends, The Relationships You Can't Afford to Live Without. And he and other leading re researchers underwent this massive study of friendship, and they found all kinds of really compelling correlations. Now, you can't always assume causation from correlation, but regardless, it's still very intriguing. So, for example, they found that uh, if your friends eat healthy food, you are five times as likely to eat healthy food. Now, whether that's because your friends' habits influence you or people who eat healthy food tend to hang out with people who also eat healthy food, it's hard to tease apart. But regardless, there's a very compelling correlation there. Friendship is more important to healthy, happy marriage than physical intimacy. At your work, if you um, say that there's nobody at your work that you're really friends with, you only have a 1 in 12 chance of being engaged at your job. Conversely, people who described their workplace as they had a best friend at work were seven times as likely to feel engaged at their job. So there's this body of research that suggests these really strong connections between the people that are closest to you influence your marriage, how you eat, whether you're engaged in your job, and so potentially your success and your earning and all kinds of things depending on who you run with. And so it's not surprising that the Bible says a number of very similar things about our faith, that the people around us deeply influence our relationship with God. It says it in a variety of places. I'll give you two. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul writes, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, interesting thing about that is um, Paul is not quoting the Bible. He's not quoting the Jewish scriptures. He's actually quoting a, a playwright named Menander who wrote about 300 years before then, and he takes that bit of wisdom uh, from this play and, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inserts it into scripture and makes it scripture. He says, you've heard this proverb spoken that bad, uh, bad uh, company corrupts good character, and I'm telling you, this is true. This is, in fact, God's truth. Similar wisdom appears in Proverbs 13.20, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. In short, according to Scripture, your friends influence your faith. The people that are closest to you influence your faith. You kind of can't get around it. And that is a simple truth, but it has some really deep implications for our lives. And it's part of why Scripture talks so often about something that's a little bit deeper than friendship. A friendship is really important, and honestly, I think we have a lot to learn about how to just be plain old good friends. Uh, a lot of this, I think, has been lost. Loyalty and, and being there for each other and thinking the best of one another and listening to one another and asking about each other and just being good friends, I think a lot of it has been lost, and there's a lot we could recover about how to just be good friends, and being good friends and having good friends is really important, biblically really important. But the Bible takes it even a step further than that. The Bible moves from friendship to fellowship. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word fellowship, 
uh, there's some things that come up in my mind. And I didn't even grow up in church, but when I hear the word fellowship, I picture like, like fellowship get-togethers, like I'm, in my mind I see a carpeted basement and styrofoam bowls with scoops of ice cream in it and little plastic spoons. Um, or I think of like fellowshipping, you know, before and after the service, chit-chatting or whatever. And all of that is great and important and vital to the life of the church. But when Scripture talks about fellowship, it's something deeper. It's a special kind of friendship. I might go so far as to say it's a sacred friendship. It's a friendship that acknowledges the truth that your friends influence your faith. And so it's a friendship that seeks to be surrounded by uh, people who will influence our faith in the right way and also take seriously the responsibility that we also influence the faith of everybody around us. And so when you hear Scripture talk about fellowship, it sounds more like, like the fellowship of the ring, like this ragtag group of misfits thrown together around a common mission. And they each have different strengths and different weaknesses, and they're each annoying in different ways, but what they share in common is the same goal, the same mission. And so the friendship is born out of this shared goal, this shared responsibility to accomplish something in the world. This is kind of what we hear about when Scripture talks about fellowship. Quick test. If you're talking to a friend and you were to say, uh, I don't know, I'm going I'm to take a break from this whole church thing. I got, I'm busy, and I'm just not getting a lot out of it. I think I'm going to take a few weeks off. If your friend said to you, at last we can start getting brunch together on Sundays, they may be a good friend. They may even be a really good friend, but that is not fellowship. Fellowship takes seriously the responsibility that we influence one another's faith. And that's why the Bible says we got to move from friendship, as good as it is, to fellowship. But Jesus takes it even a step farther. He moves from fellowship to something even deeper, and I want to look at a passage where he talks about this, this thing, this shift, where he totally redefines our most fundamental relationships to the point where the first time you read it, it, it almost sounds wrong. What he says sounds deeply unsettling. And in fact, if you don't understand what he's going for, it, it almost sounds like what he's saying is wrong. But he's doing something profound in terms of how he is redefining our most fundamental loyalties in life. This appears in Mark chapter 3. And right before the section we're going to look at, Mark 3, verse 20 and following, Mark records how Jesus went up in the mountain and prayed all night to his Father for wisdom about who he should select to be his 12 disciples. These 12 men that Jesus was going to walk with, eat with, teach, sleep out in the open air with for the next three years. I mean, we're talking about some serious, strong fellowship. And I don't think it's an accident that when the Holy Spirit inspired Mark, to curate Jesus' life events and put them in the order that he did to read to us, that he put the choosing of the 12 disciples right before this section that happens here. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It's so packed with people that want to hear from Jesus, they can't even eat. When his family, when Jesus' family heard about this, They went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, it's easy to kind of uh, look down on Mary and Jesus' brothers and cousins or whoever it was that came to get him, um, and like, how could they not see? But just think about it for a minute. If you one day started implying that you were the only begotten son or daughter of the one true living God, even if there were reports of miracles and crowds following you around and stuff, what would mama do? what would she think? They'd think he's out of his mind. 
They come to take, they don't know what's going on. They think he has lost it. And so they go to take charge of him. Now, I'm, I'm going to skip over the next few verses because there's kind of a, a religious debate that Jesus has with some of the religious experts there. And I want to get down to where his family re-enters the scene again. But I'll just comment briefly on it because it's a very intense passage of Scripture that I wish I had time to go into because it's one that scares a lot of people and a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about it. And I'd like to try to put you at ease about it. Um, he gets in this debate with the religious leaders, and he says this thing about anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven. And this has become a really famous passage, the unforgivable sin. And a lot of people are scared, like, I think I committed the unforgivable sin, and now I'm just, I'm out of it. Well, here's the thing. If you are at all concerned about whether you had or might commit the unforgivable sin, then you have not committed the unforgivable sin. What's going on there is Jesus is performing these miracles, real miracles, not kind of uh, charlatan miracles in revival tents where like someone's leg was a half an inch shorter than the other one and he like made, oh, it's, it stretched it out. Like real miracles where somebody who was blind from birth and everybody in town knew this guy was blind from birth and now suddenly he can see and everybody in town knows this is a real thing. They know this guy's name they went to school with him when he was a kid. Real miracles. He's performing real miracles, and these are good things that are happening. People are having their, their, their sick and their dead given back to them. People are walking who couldn't walk. I mean, these are good things that are happening. And the religious leaders who, they see this. They recognize that this is happening, but they reject Jesus mostly because he keeps empowering and speaking up for the poor and the marginalized and not the rich and the powerful. And so they reject Jesus, but they see that these things are happening. They say... It's by the power of the devil that he's doing this. That's how he does these miracles. The devil. It's black magic. That's how he does it. And that's where Jesus says, look, you can say what you want about my father. You can say what you want about me. But anybody that, it it, it has the feel of like, don't talk about my mama. Anyone who says anything about the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. And what's going on here? I, I think what he's saying is, if you see good and call it evil, how can God forgive it? What's, is he going to grab you by the collar and drag you into heaven and say, enjoy it now? When meanwhile, you're ducking and hiding, afraid that Jesus, the one who represents the devil, might find you and make you associate with people who are lower than you are? How can he? If you, it's one thing if you, if you see good is good and you recognize, I fall short, I need to be forgiven. Any of that can be forgiven. Jesus forgive anything. But if you're just like, I see good and I don't want it, that's evil. I want this, which is evil. How can't, what's he going to force you into heaven? So that is not the point of the message today. But if you're all worried about whether you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you're worried about it, you have not done it. Skip down to verse 31. His mothers and his brothers come back. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, <clears throat> standing outside because they can't get in for the crowd. They sent someone to, in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't think that Jesus is being snarky here. I don't think the people sitting around him were like, oh, snap, you put them in their place. I don't think it was like that. I think that, I don't think Jesus was saying like, you're nothing to me. We know from looking at his life, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, that that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, however important family is, this is way more important 
He is fundamentally redefining our most fundamental loyalties, our most fundamental relationships in life. Jesus is pushing it not just from friendship to fellowship, but from fellowship to family. And you have to marvel at what a massive shift this is. If you uh, subscribe at all to evolutionary biology, which I think it, it helps explain a lot in the world, the idea that that which can survive does, and that which can adapt, that's what exists, then you have to marvel at the way Jesus hacked reality. Because here we have a man who was completely celibate, never had a kid, never passed on his DNA, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, 2.2 billion men, women, and children claim his name, Christian. Originally a derogatory slur, by the way, little Christ. Other people called Christians Christians. But then Christians said, you know what, that's fine, I'll take that, little Christ. And now here we are, Christians. And you've got to marvel at the way he hacked reality, and you've got to think about what a great hope this is. This alternate way that the world is developing. You know, there's DNA and bloodlines, but then Jesus hacked it. He got above it. He, he, he got around it. And there's this new way that people are relating to each other and becoming a family. It's such an incredible hope for anybody that wants kids but can't have them or doesn't have them or, or wants to get married and it just doesn't happen, which these things often happen this way in life. Um, when you're in the God's family, the way you make kids is you make disciples. The way you make brothers and sisters is you make disciples. And what a great hope this is for somebody. And I wonder, could it be what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are you who leave your families to follow me because you will receive a hundred times more children in this life and also in the life to come. Now, having said all that, I want to pause to just talk about what he did not mean because when we start, when we read this, when we hear about how Jesus is like, sort of feels like he turns his back on his mom and his brothers and he says, this is my real family, it triggers some things for me and it probably does in you. Uh, one thing that it triggers that I do not think Jesus meant is this does not mean that your biological family does not matter. You can't look at Jesus' life and read scripture and come to that conclusion. The, in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that God gave that, that had a promise along with it was honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you in the land, the promised land that I bring you to. And there's a similar command in the New Testament. It says that anybody that does not take care of the needs of his own family, meaning his own biological family, is worse than an unbeliever. So it's saying like if you're using your faith as an excuse to ignore your biological family, you're not even a believer to begin with. And Jesus himself, when he was dying on the cross, he took a moment to make sure his mother, Mary, would be taken care of. He, he points her out, and uh, he points to John, who is probably his closest friend among the disciples. And he says, John, this is your mother. Mom, this is your son. And he, so he took, he took his, some of his last breaths to make sure his own mother, earthly mother, would be provided for after he had lost his life. So you can't look at Jesus' life and say, family did not matter to him. You can just write off your family. It's all about God's family now. No, if anything, he's saying, as much as that biological tie matters. This new thing that God is doing is so much more. The other thing it doesn't mean is he doesn't mean that God's family is like my family or that God's family is like your family. Because depending on where you're coming from, that could trigger some stuff too. We all, we all come from families, even if you, when you think back on your life, if it's mostly a vacuum because you were fostered or dad left or mom left, there's, there's still a family of a kind, a missing family that we all come from. And we all have 
positive things and negative things that our families put into us. Some of them are really silly. Some of them are serious. My family, for whatever reason, growing up, whenever we took a family vacation, we tended to go to a state park and rent a cabin and hang out together. And one of the things we did was we would play poker for Skittles. I don't know why. This is just what we did. My mom would buy a big family bag of Skittles, open up the bag, dump it on the table, divvy them up, and then we would gamble for Skittles. Um, my little brother always lost because he would just eat his while we were playing, and by the end of the game, they were all nasty because they'd been passed back and forth or whatever. But now that is just in me. Now, when I think about my own two little boys, I'm like, I can't wait till they're old enough so I can teach them how to play Texan Hold'em with Skittles. It's just in me to do this right now. And that's a silly little thing, but it's just, it's in me now. There are serious things, some of them positive. My family was really big on academics. My dad taught at a university, and we were required to be on the honor roll as kids. It was not an option. Um, and we read books and read books to each other. And, and uh, I can remember when I was a little kid, my mom gave me a dollar for every book I read. So I just read, 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 read until I loved it. And um, academics was a big thing. That's a good thing, you know. But some of the things are maybe not so good. Like, for example, in my family, we started drinking coffee when I was really little. It was just like a thing in my family. I mean, I don't, it doesn't really feel like a bad thing to me, but I guess now I, have to, I would have to admit I am more susceptible to that addiction, that caffeine addiction, because of that. And I know I'm not the only one who does that. I, I teach fifth grade math at a school where the, almost the entire student population is, is Latino. And uh, I'm definitely not qualified to speak about all Spanish people, but I'll just say the parents of my two classes of fifth graders tend to feed their kids coffee in the morning. Um, and you know what that makes me want to say? It makes me want to say thank you. <laughs> thank you for giving your wild little boy a big cup of coffee right before you push him into my classroom. Thank you. Thank you. That's why I give him candy at the end of the day, right before I hand him back to you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Some of these things are silly things. Some of these things are serious things. I was talking to my dad um, a little while back, and we were talking about some of the negative things in our family. So positive there's really no divorce in, in my family. Ma couples, we get married, we stay together, no matter what it takes. And so me, I don't, divorce doesn't really come into my mind. Like, if Lindsay and I get in a big fight or we go through a rough patch, I know we're going to work it out somehow. It doesn't really come into my mind like maybe this is the beginning of the end or whatever. And that's not because I have a virtue or because I'm good. It's because that's how my family did it, and I just inherited that. On the flip side, my family tends to scatter like, my parents moved a few hundred miles away from their parents. I moved a few hundred miles away from my parents. We live all over the place. One of my brothers lives in Australia. We just, we're not tight. We, we, we're, we're scattered. And we're not good at making friends. My parents didn't really have friends, family friends growing up. I'm, I'm not really good at making friends. Our marriages are solid, but we're kind of in these little bubbles. And that, that's just in me. I'm just not good at that. And we all have these things. When you think about your family or whatever was missing from your experience of family growing up, there's silly little things that are just in you, how you do holidays, what mom or dad, who does which chores. There's big, serious things. Some of them are positive that you need to hold on to. Some of them are not and need to be unlearned or relearned. We often reference Pete and Jerry Scazzaro um, here. They're, they're pastors in Queens who pioneered the emotionally healthy spirituality material, and they have all these amazing little sentences that just summarize a topic. And when they talk about this, something that they say is that Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And it's true for all of us. 
our families like, affect us. And so what that means is, if we're going to move from fellowship to family, part of what it means to be discipled is we have to relearn how things work in God's family. Because make no mistake, when you are born again, you are born again into a new family. When a baby is born in this world, he or she is born into a family. And when you are reborn into the faith, you are reborn into a new family. And a large part of what discipleship means is unlearning some of the things that we have from our own earthly families and relearning how things work in God's family. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions like, how do things work in God's family? How, how do we use our time in God's family? How do we use our money in God's family? How do we interact with one another? How do we listen to one another? What sorts of things do we say to one another? When we have a problem with one another, how do we deal with it in God's family? And it may be different from how we dealt with it in our own family. How do we treat the sick, the vulnerable, the powerless, the disenfranchised in God's family? It's probably different from the attitudes maybe that my family or that your family had. And so all of us have to come to this. Things are different now. I'm in a new family and things are different now. So for example, maybe in your family, everybody was the same ethnicity, but just look around the room. It's clearly not true in God's family. God's family is different. And maybe in my family or your family, everybody spoke English. But if you will travel around the world a little bit, you'll find out that in God's family, English speakers are a very small minority. Or maybe in your family, everybody voted a certain way. But the thing is, in God's family, there are people who disagree with you so sharply on some issues that the two of you would feel like we can't possibly be in the same family. Maybe in your family, when the going went tough in marriage, you knew things were falling apart and this thing was probably going to end in divorce. Not so in God's family. Maybe in your family, when you had a problem with somebody in the family, you went and you talked to everybody else in the family besides the person you had a problem with. Not so in God's family. Maybe in your family, when somebody was annoying or a drag or down and out or just hard to be around, you avoided that person. But in God's family, we choose to love one another because every single one of us is annoying to somebody. Trust me. <laughs> right now, there's somebody out there like Chris Travis. Like, I can't stand that guy. I'm telling you. Things are different in God's family, and a huge part of discipleship means we have to learn how things function in God's family. Now, we're talking about this today because signups for community groups are happening right now, and a bunch of us are going to go back into our community groups and join back in, and some, some of us are going to join in for the very first time. And so I want to push this down into some very down-to-earth practical steps that we could each take to push our own lives and our church and our groups in the direction of moving from friendship to fellowship to family. And even if you're not going to be in a group because um, you just can't this time around or you're not there yet in your faith, you can, I'm hoping, take some of this and implement it in your life either when, if you will stick around for a few minutes and talk to somebody after the service, or if you will come to any of the numbers of things that Renaissance puts on and meet some people, or maybe um, with the people you work alongside of in, in crew. So there's five of them that I came up with. Here they are. Number one is a mind shift, uh, a mental change. I want to recommend that you decide to settle in for the long haul, that you change it from from looking over the person's shoulder to the cooler thing or the better thing, or maybe it would be easier over there or, or better over there, to, no, I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to stick with this family. I'm going to make this work. 
modern day life is so transient, and I understand job says you got to go, you got to go. You, you move, you know, oh, whatever. But as much as it depends on you, could you make the decision that I'm going to stick with this for the long haul? Because here's the truth. You cannot get 10-year friendships in 10 weeks. If you want a 10-year friendship, it's going to cost you 10 years. The, you got to go through some stuff. You've got to be around people long enough that there's actually something to forgive. To even live half the stuff the Bible talks about with relationships, you've got to really go through some things with people. Boring times, annoying times, good times, times when you're clashing, times when you work through things, times when you say, I'm sorry, times when you say it's no big deal. You've got to go through some things. And all of us really long for those relationships, but you, you have to settle in for the long haul. All right, now I'm going to get really simple. Number two, in your group or in whatever circle you're in, um, get to know everybody. Learn their names. Step one, try in the first week or two a group to know everybody's name. I say that because I'm, I, I need that reminder. I'm bad at learning people's names. I forget them. I got to relearn them. But if you think about your earthly family, you know everybody's names. And find out a little bit about them. What brought them to the city? Where do they live? What are they studying? What do they do for a living? Do they have kids? Do they have siblings? Because if you think about your earthly family, you know your uncle, you know if he has kids. You probably have their, phone, their pictures in your phone right now. And so this is your family. This is your new family. You just got to know these basic things about each other. So number two, get to know everyone, learn their names. Number three, pray for everybody in your group. More than anything else that we could do, this would revolutionize our own hearts and the impact of this church. When you decide to pray for people, you just moved it from friendship to fellowship. Uh, number four, share meals together. This is one of the reasons why it's so great that some of the groups decide to share meals here and there. Um, but regardless, outside of group time, get together for a little bite here and there or a cup of coffee. Something powerful happens when you share meals with somebody because what do families do? Families eat together. This is what they do. And something shifts in a relationship when you share meals together. It doesn't have to be some super spiritual thing. You don't need to sit down like, how are you doing with Jesus today? It doesn't need to be like that. It can just be get together for lunch. I really mean it. And something shifts over time when you share meals with people. Um, and then number five, get into one another's homes. I don't really know why this is so powerful, but something shifts in a relationship when you have been inside my place, and I have been inside your place. When it's one or the other, it's great. That's a big step. But the friends that I have where you've been in my apartment and I've been in your apartment, they're on a different level. That's where you start to, like, these are friends. These are my friends. And so on that note, be willing to invite people into your place. Have a game night or have people over to watch football. Or, and if somebody in your group says, hey, do you guys want to come over? If you can make it happen, will you go over there? And what, what you'll find is that as you do that, get into each other's homes and share meals and know each other's names and pray for each other, that it starts to shift from fellowship to family. But as you practice hospitality like that, I just want to set you free a little bit and let you know your place does not need to be perfect. Like for Lindsay and I host a group, and we obviously clean our place up when everybody comes over, but I want to push you to have people over when your place is not perfect. We don't care. We don't care if there's a pile of dishes in the sink and there's clothes on the floor and there's a stain on the couch from your three-year-old or whatever. We don't care. In invite people in to the mess. And you'll find that's actually a metaphor for inviting people into the mess of your life. And you know you've got a real friend when you invite them over and they come in and they just start doing your dishes for you. 
And you know you've got a real friend when they do your dishes and then they know where everything goes when they put it away. That's like a real friend. And you know you've crossed over from friend to family when they do your dishes and they don't know where everything goes and they just make an executive decision for you. And now, from now on, that's where your calendar goes because that's what they decided. We can be the church without this public gathering. We can. We can obey the Bible without this. Now, this is important. I love this. Studying the Word together, worshiping together. I love what's happening with my kids in in, um, the Renaissance Kids. This is important. And wherever Christians have been able to in history and wherever they are allowed to in the world, we do this. We do a big public gathering whenever we can. But sometimes because of persecution or because of the way the laws of a country are, we can't. And you can still be the church without this. You can still follow the Bible without this. But you cannot be the church without real community. You cannot do a lot of what the Bible instructs us to do without real community. Because the church is a faith family. Father, son, sister, brother. Welcome to the family. Let's pray. God, I pray first that you would... um, Open us up, open me up, break open our hearts and remove whatever barriers they may be for us to let people get close to us and for us to draw near to one another in a real way. And I pray that you would help each of us, prompt each of us to take a step in our own lives so that together in our groups and as a church, we move from friendship to something deeper, to fellowship and to something deeper and more beautiful yet, to family. We pray in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.